50th down the bottom of the garden, barbecue, lighthouse family. Perfect. Good times. Welcome. We are Neil, Luke and Dave. 340-somethings reminiscing on the runners and riders of 90s guitar music. We look at the bands who soundtracked our youth on both sides of the pond and interview some of our heroes from the bands that defined a generation. You'll hear about the good, the bad and the ugly of 90s guitar music. This podcast is stupid and contagious. Welcome to episode 15 of the Stupid and Contagious podcast. 15. One more than 14. Jesus Jones this week, Ian Baker. Really good interview coming up. Before we get into this week's episode, kind of predicted Shane McGowan's death. We didn't predict it. We did predict it. Luke predicted it. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't really. Did I? I just said he was. He was looking bad. Although you know, in retrospect, he was. He was being taken out. He was taken. Being taken home to die. Right. It's sad, right? Uh, it's always sad when someone musical dies. I think. Uh, Luke, you say you weren't a massive fan. Well, uh, you know, I feel a bit bad about saying that now. Not because he's dead. I don't mind talking ill of the dead. I, you know, when Michael Jackson right, died, okay. that fucking pedo. <laughs> Because it couldn't have gone any sooner. But, um, like... Right. Uh, I did take that I, I think out of the I was, last one, but you've just put it... I know you did. That's why I'm saying it again. But I, I didn't know... And I don't know enough about their music to, to say that he wasn't a musical genius. I, I don't think he was, but I, I can't really judge. So I don't know enough about him to judge that he wasn't a musical genius. So I feel bad about saying that. I'm just judging on that one song, I think, which I think is genius. I haven't heard much of his... I've heard, like, Irish Rover and stuff like that, but... um. Yeah, maybe I don't know enough about him either to, to make the judgment that he is one or was one. Dave, you're very quiet. Do you not, not have any views on... I thought, you know, they showed a lot of stuff about him on the telly that the day he died and uh, hmm. did seem he was a bit quite a poet as well. And also yeah. that, that, you know, he kind of... It was a bit of an act. You know, when he hmm. went on stage, this whole drunken Irish guy was a, a bit of an act. But I guess the more he drank the more he became a drunk sad story really we are left with that that song every year which which is a nice legacy i think kirsty mccall no longer with us as well you know didn't she get killed by a shark <laughs> she was eaten by a shark she wasn't i'm having dave's version i'm having dave's version <laughs> she might have got eaten by the shark after she got hit by a speedboat that's insane. Kirsty McCall eaten by a shark. When? Year 2000, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a good 20 years ago. Because mm. um, they got mm. Katie Mello- Malua, Malua, I can never say her name, Katie Mellowa to re-record Fairytale and Knew What with Shane McGowan one year. It was all right, actually. But um, yeah, no, she died on holiday. She got hit by a speedboat. And eaten by a shark. Did they catch the shark? They got away scot-free. Yeah, they do that, don't they? Hit and run. Dave, are your Christmas songs on loud and proud in your house now? Uh, yeah, we've got them playing. Oh, i got I got um, a bit of a trick. I've got lots of Christmas cards to write. I bought a stamp online with it customised. So it's, you know, from me and all the family. So I could just go stamping each card. Does it say, does it say happy Christmas, you cunts, from me and the family? No. <laughs> Should do. Did you use ChatGPT to come up with the text of the stamp? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. You'd be lost without that now, wouldn't you? You have to consult it for every decision. Right, let's get on to Jesus Jones. I knew they'd had a lot of success, but I didn't realise that they got nominated for a, 
a Grammy for a song and album in 1991, yeah. I think it was. Mm. I mean, that's that's something in itself, wow. isn't it? And they won Best Newcomer at the MTV Awards that year as well. That's right, I got that here as well, yeah. Uh, the only UK winners. They won yeah. the Best New Artist, yeah, at the MTV yeah. Awards. Only UK winners that year. Massive things happened to them in a really short space of time, right? We haven't introduced who they are yet. Let's do it. Fuck, you know. Yeah. Um, indie dance? Yeah, well, I've got... Oh, go on, do your, do your <laughs> Wikipedia description. House and Techno meets Indie Rock. Yeah, that's similar. right. That's quite good. Similar. Yeah. 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 We'll go yeah. with that, I think. So it formed in 1988 um, out of the ashes of a couple of smaller bands, I think. Um, as we talk about in the interview, um, today's guest, Ian Baker, was the last uh, to join. Um, got Mike mm. Edwards on vocals and guitar. Jerry uh, on guitar as well. Uh, Al on the bass. Ian doing the keyboards. And a guy called Gen. I guess it's Gen rather than Jen. Gen uh, on the drums. Um, and as he well, I won't, I won't talk about it too much because he goes through it quite in detail, isn't he? But it's really it's a really good interview. Yeah, um, it all happened really quickly after he joined, basically, mm. um, and things started happening to the band like super, super quick, super quick. First album, Liquidizer, nineteen eighty nine. Um, so they signed to Food Records, a very kind of new record label at the time, famous now for signing Blur. So signed with them. Um, so that first album got to number 32 in the charts. Pretty good. Uh, song art for their Info Freako, which I think is probably still their best song, maybe. Um, it's it's song. just so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple of others. Yeah. Um, the big one, second album, Doubt, came in 1991. UK number one. Um, yeah. yeah. Massive songs right here, right now. Number one everywhere, basically. Really was. A few bands to have a, a, a US number one. I think people forget how big, big they were. They were huge over here, but they were, yeah, just as big over there. I think around the time of that MTV Awards that they they won that award, um, they sold out like a US tour before they'd even got there, sort of thing. It was just just on the hype. Were, yeah, I've got an interesting thing from Wikipedia about the name of the band. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it says the name of the band came about when they realised that they were three Joneses. Does that mean like what does that mean? Was the name Jones? No, who I mean who there's nobody's called Jones in the band. Does it mean if you're on your own, like on your on your Jack Jones? Well, maybe they were Jones in for some drugs. Maybe their mum their mum was all called Joan. <laughs> so they realised they were three Joneses sitting on a beach in Spain surrounded by people called Jesus. Oh, I guess Jesus. But that seems like a really elaborate way to doesn't make any sense. You're right. <laughs> no. But also, I was so reading sure something. That's just bullshit. And they, they were when they played um, some kind of like corporate gigs and stuff in America. They they weren't allowed to say like the name of the oh, band. Jesus. In case it would be yeah. like, yeah, exactly. It'd be like offensive to um, yeah, people like conservative, religious conservatives, basically. What's a corporate gig? Well, I'll talk about this later. Actually, because it's um, well, let's talk about it now. It's like basically they get paid like thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds to play for like 10 minutes to some like company's like annual award ceremony or ceremony or whatever. I was filming like an event uh, for a, a Christmas works dude, the, the guy who owns Brighton and Hove Albion. <clears throat> it was just in this like manor Good house bloke. in the middle of nowhere. Up the Albion. A fat boy slim. Uh, that's, a, that's a corporate event, Dave. So it's just like a Christmas party, but they had fat boy slim playing. 
I found this um, article from The Guardian from like 2003 or four or something like that, written by the, the singer, by, by uh, Mike, uh, about the, playing corporate. It's a really funny article, just, um, just mm. insane. Just like, um, it's basically, they, they worked out, you know, he worked out, they, they, would, they had to play the same song twice, right, right here, right now. That was it. So like seven minutes work, basically. Oh, that was it. That, that was the whole gig. That was the gig. And they got flown over, put in a five-star hotel, paid hundreds of thousands of pounds to play for seven minutes to That's some nuts, disinterested fucking businessmen. Yeah, they're probably all sitting at a table or something. It's nuts, isn't it? It's seven minutes of entertainment in their evening. Yeah. I think it happens It happens more than you think. I think it happens a lot in like Dubai and places like that. Well, comedians do it a lot as well, right? Just to sort of play in the background, really. They just got money to burn and they just think, oh, we're... We get them in. Easy money, isn't it? Don't think the Lighthouse family get many corporate geeks. I fucking um, bet they do. I they bet do. they do. They're perfect corporate <laughs> fodder, man. That's, that's all they do. Dave, get them in for your Christmas party. Oh, mate, I'd love to. We haven't even got get one. Get them in for the Berwick Festival next man. summer. You'd love that, wouldn't you? You'd love it if they popped up at your Christmas party with their Santa hats on. Well, I don't need the Santa hats. You might have to pay extra to get them to wear those. I wouldn't compromise their integrity by asking them to. No, they're, they're artists. You're right, you're right, you're right. They could change the lyrics to Ocean Drive to, like, I don't know, Christmas Drive or something. Santa's <coughs> Drive. Santa's Drive, know. yeah. So it's, it's, something, it's something to think about anyway, Dave. So maybe next year, you know, put it to the team. Well, we haven't even got a party, so. Maybe for your 50th. They could play in your garden. You know, 50th, lighthouse, down the bottom of the garden, barbecue, lighthouse family. Perfect. Good times. Ocean drive, just as the sun's going down. Well, I'm not paying for them. You can. Yeah, won't make any promises. So then, but not only, I mean, also International Bright Young Thing, Real, 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 huge, huge songs, right, from that album. So third album, Perverse, um, released in 1993, much darker um, mm. Kind of a bit more industrial sound going on, darker. In, in the interview, I call it the come down record. And uh... I do say this a lot about a lot of bands, but it does. I think it is true for a lot of bands that his vocal is really unique, isn't it? Which I think is part of the appeal. It's instantly recognisable. Yeah, I think that's what I mean. I think that's what I mean when I say stuff like. I think a lot of bands you can just the vocalist. It's interesting that you you focus on that, Dave. What do you focus on? Guitar. Yeah, but Neil, is is it the vocal or is it an effect they put on it? I think it is just his vocal, but I know what you mean. I think they do put an effect on it too. Which I like, you know, and it does make, it is distinct. Uh, a good good looking bunch of chaps. I think that might have helped their appeal. Um, yeah. A bit like EMF, I think. EMF and them at the time. I don't want to slag off all the other bands and they're all ugly, but. I'm just saying those those two, but they're like boy bands, really, weren't they? But with guitars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all young, good-looking lads. Yeah, young, good-looking British lads. Americans are gonna they're gonna like that shit, aren't they? So I think that's what happened. But plus, they had good music, right? I've put a lot in my notes that because I've been listening to them a lot this week, and I've been thinking you too. Oh, what did you do that for? Give him a chance. Go on, go on. That's maybe what appeals in America. They love you too in America, right? Yeah. They do. So you're saying it's like a big stadiums kind of sound? Some of the songs sound like U2 songs. Like what? I didn't note down the exact songs I was thinking of. 
Oh, the devil you know, for example. That, mm. That's probably my uh, favorite. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'll give you that. That might be mine as well. It's one of my favorites. Mm. I think I had that perverse album. I'd forgotten I had it, but I remember all the songs on it, so I must have had it. And I remember the the uh, album artwork. It's got uh, zeros and ones on it as well, isn't it? Which is yeah, it's good. The right yeah, decision's good on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it it's is. a great yeah. album. Yeah, got a real kind of depth to it, right? Which I think is uh, doubt. Yeah. Doubt is a big sounding word, but it doesn't have that depth to it. It's, yeah, it's really good. They had another. They had another album in '97 called Already, um, but by then it, it was over. Basically, that got that mm. climbed to 161 in the charts. But they never broke up. Basically, um, they kind of drifted apart no. for a while, and they did different things and. Like I played these kind of corporate gigs and that kind of thing. They, their songs got used in all kinds of adverts and everything like that. But they, they never actually broke up. And then they started kind of playing live kind of semi-regularly together, like in the mid-2000s, like 2004 or five or something like that. And they've just been doing that, but, but not releasing albums or anything, um, no. just playing. They did release an album in 2018, um, mm. called Voyager or something a Passage they made a remix album Voyager called Passage right. um, which is which is alright uh, did you listen to it? No I, I haven't listened to that one Dave did you listen? No I didn't but there was an album called London I listened to Yeah I think that was not a whole album that was like I'm not sure what that was it wasn't an official studio album anyway That was completely different I don't know if it was a mm. different lineup in the band and a bit like McFly or but, uh, <laughs> like that. Interesting. Okay. The 2018 yeah. album sounds like Jesus Jones. Um, there's like two or three like really good songs in it, but yeah, not not that much else. But mm. it's, it's worth a listen. Got on my nose. Um, I don't think I said it in the interview. Correct. We can cut it if if I did. I can't even remember where I got it from, but I found a quote from Mark Arm from Mudhoney. Right. Yeah. Saying that Jesus Jones helped to pave the way for grunge. Fuck! Really? That's quite a statement from from yeah. quite a person from Mr. Grunge. If true, that's pretty good. We talked about in how they've been quite active since the two thousands, and they still play live quite regularly here and in the US. I think they've still got a big audience in the US that they go and tour over there. Oh, actually, on that, sorry, Neil, I noticed their biggest audience on Spotify is in Australia. Oh really? Oh, maybe they oh, they do tour over there as well. I think yeah, I think they are. I think Populate Yourself quite big in Australia as well. I think they do like. Well, there's a lot of there's a big English expat community out there as well, isn't there? I'm not really comfortable with the term expat. Oh, migrants. Sorry, migrants. There's yeah, a lot of English mi- There's a lot of a lot of English migrants out there. No, you're right. It's only used for white people, right? As if they, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they're, absolutely. They're choosing to go wherever they want. Yeah, yeah. It needs to be phased out. You're right to pick me up on that. We would call them migrants. That's what I am. I'm an economic migrant. What's I going to say? But uh, so I saw them at Shine On a couple of weeks ago. Bloody brilliant. I don't say bloody brilliant very often. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was good about the set? Well, they did. They opened up the whole festival. So I guess. The first band on it's everyone's sort of up for it, and they but they were no great anyway. I just hit after hit, isn't it? That's that's what they do. Um, they've just got so many songs that everyone knows, which is not many bands have got that. I don't think 
Like universally, like if you're into a band, yeah, but like anyone, even if they weren't into indie music, could have gone to that gig and they'd have known the songs. They're just universally known songs. And it, yeah, it was, they were just still a great band live. Did they have a, like a lot of energy on stage? Was it a good Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, great. It was a good performance, yeah. They, they, and they still, they still look great, you know, they're still a good looking bunch of lads. Mike, he doesn't, he still looks the same, really. It doesn't really aged. Great. Did you take any, is there any videos? Is there any of your reels we can, we can attach to the, the notes of the podcast? Yeah, I would definitely do that. Uh, I'll put those in the, put those in the notes and I'll share them in the Facebook group. Right. Uh, should we get on, get into the interview? Yeah. Okay. Here's Ian Baker from Jesus Jones. Enjoy. Uh, hello, Ian. Thanks for coming on. Uh, basically, how are things going? Um, yeah, they're going pretty good, actually. I'm always, um, I'm always kind of amazed that people still want to talk to us uh, after, you know, it's 35 years. So just the fact that people do want to still talk to us and the fact that we're still doing stuff, um, that's, that's definitely a victory in my book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I see that you're getting ready for a, a US tour in June and July. Um, maybe I think you're playing a couple of places in the UK as well. Are you, are you excited? Uh, yeah, definitely. We're, we've got a festival gig in the UK in June. We're going to be doing Shine Festival in Minehead. Yeah, in that looks amazing, right? Yeah, there's other, there's other things that are up in the air as well. Hopefully we're going to be doing more stuff. Um, yeah, so it's good to be busy. Um, like I said, after so many years of doing this, every year that comes past and people still want to come and see us, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, also, um, as you can see behind me, I'm a bit of a, a, a record nerd. I always check through the Record Store Day uh, releases to see what's coming out. And I saw the you had a Live in Chicago 1990 uh, record. Um, yes. Yeah, we did. We put out, um, we've put so much stuff out in the last, two three years i think we've mm. done we've done two record store day 12 inch singles we did zeros and right here and then we've done yeah. this is the second of our records day album record store day albums last year we did scratched which was a japanese cd only compilation so that came out of vinyl um and this year <clears throat> there was a it was a mini cd ep that um our record company in the u.s put out with five tracks, with five live tracks, and they put that out in the early 90s, and that was recorded live at the Metro in Chicago. Uh, and this album is basically pretty much the whole of the gig. So that CD's been out of print for years, and we just found the whole gig and thought, right, we're going to put the whole thing out on vinyl. Um, so three sides of it are the Chicago gig, and the fourth is a recording of ourselves playing with the Cramps, yeah, on a European tour, the first European. How was tour that? I mean, in, they, yeah, they're not insane. obvious bedfellows, Jesus Jones and the Cramps. I mean, how 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 was that? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, we weren't obvious bedfellows. I mean, we just thought, oh, that'd be good. It's two kind of different but cool bands playing. And I don't think the Cramps audience was quite ready for um, <laughs> a bunch of kind of ravey kids that wanted to play with you know samplers and house music. Um, that's not really the cramps target audience is it you know no, what i mean, I mean no. uh so yeah there were times where the audience were the audiences were pretty combative it has to be said but then again there are other times i mean listening back to that gig that we played in amsterdam you hear the audience like loving it so mm. so that's really good um yeah uh, those were the yeah. days 
yeah and the the vinyl looks looks beautiful by the way on that uh oh um, yeah well it, least, oh it always you know i'm a i'm a vinyl nerd as well um yeah always have been so that's been that's been quite important for me when i do record store days i'm the person that oversees it so oh really mm. yeah so i always make to make sure that everything you know you sound as good as possible you make sure everything is flat transferred so there's no loudness wars going on um you know, I just want to make doing... sure that the whole, the whole packages look great. You know, so, say, are uh, you doing the sleeve notes and everything as well? Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. So, I, I mean, how's that to reflect on that and everything? It's really good. You know, I mean, looking back, it's it's brilliant to be able to look back, to be able to think about those times and think, well, what happened? What was going on then? And try to um, get all your memories in order, but also put those memories across to people so that they understand what what was going on and hopefully... I guess the killer thing is to try and give people a little bit of insight that they didn't have before. You know, that's always really important because, you know, when you do pick up an album, it's not just a listening to vinyl isn't isn't a, a passive thing. You know, these days with so much of music consumption with Spotify, it is so passive. It's there in the background when you're driving around in your car or you can just tell the speaker in the kitchen to play you some music to keep you busy while you're cooking pasta you know i mean it's it is such a passive thing whereas listening to vinyl is is very very kind of it's an active process you know whilst you listen you you look at the sleeve and you read the sleeve notes and you check it all out and and i think it's really important that while you don't lose that opportunity to connect with people and give them something back and that's what i always try and do but anytime i put an album out i always try and give something back somehow yeah i'm i'm not such a, a music buff as luke so I, i'm just wondering what that record store day is i haven't really what what is a record uh, it's, store it's, it was a record store day is a thing which was created to um i suppose basically um give a little bit back to um, independent record stores which are the sort of always have been the lifeblood of the music yeah. scene in the uk and you know they support emerging talent they're vital for emerging talent you know they put gigs on bands will play in shops um and it's just you know it, it keeps money flowing through the system as well which is vitally important to support artists um and it means that people have something to get excited about this limited edition format reissues and um special vinyl editions and yeah it's it's for the collectors it's something that's important for for record nerds but also beyond that i think it's important for the music business as a whole to show that there is still that level of connection between between artist and consumer and also actually it's it's not just artist and consumer it's a it's a triangular thing it's artist mm. retailer and consumer they're three points of the triangle which are vitally important and what record store day does is it attempts to make that those connections on those points of the triangle and it attempts to try and tie them all together and make it special give it something special for that particular time um it's great it's a good thing to be involved with yeah 
Um, it's interesting what you were saying about, um, you know, giving the insights and the reflections. That's exactly kind of what we were hoping for when we started this podcast, basically. Yeah. So can we can we go back to the start? I think you're maybe the last to join the band. How did that come about, basically? Um, I met Mike in a pub. <laughs> I met Mike in a pub and he was wearing a pair of skate shoes. And I said, uh, hey, you skate. And because at that time, if you bought, wore a pair of skate shoes, these days, if you wear a pair of skate shoes, you've just gone to a shop and bought a pair of skate shoes. <laughs> um, back then, if you wore a pair of skate shoes, it meant that you were a skater. And um, yeah. at that point in 1988, late 88, mid-88, I suppose it was, um, skating wasn't still a massive, massive thing. It really took off at the beginning, I suppose, of 89. That's when it really, really started to pile back in again. And so, you know, all the way through the 80s, if you met somebody that was wearing skate clothes, you're like, ah, you're one of us. Um, and there weren't that many of us, so to speak. Um, so we got talking and he was like, yeah, I still skate. And I was like, yeah, so do I. So let's go skating. Let's go skating tomorrow. And he was like, okay, fine. Fair enough. So we, we did. I, he rang me the next and I rang him the next day and said, let's skate. And we went and we met in Harrow at the skate park there. Um, I think we might have even gone back up to London and skated. Meanwhile, meanwhile, too, just skate park in London. So anyway, we skated all day and it was only after about two or three weeks of constant skating. He was like, oh, well, I'm in a band. Um, and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And he's like, yeah, you'll have to come and see us play or I'll play you some of our songs. And I knew nothing about it for about another two or three weeks until he did play me a demo. And he said, look, this is the band. We're trying to find a new name. Uh, we've got a new identity. We've got we're doing all this stuff. So he played me the demos and I was like, holy cow, those are amazing. Um, and then... And so I went to see about seven or eight, seven or eight gigs, maybe that they played on their own, maybe less than that. I don't know. And at one point in November 1988, we were they were playing at the King's Head in Fulham. And Andy Ross, who was one of the bosses of Food Ross uh, Records, um, mm. bumped into me in the toilets. And I was just sitting there watching. But the, I'd been watching the band and he was going, they're really good, aren't they? And I said, yes, they are. And he said, you should get involved. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And he was like, I don't know, but you should get involved. Um, and, it, and at that point, a, a couple of days later, Mike said to me, well, how would you like to come and play samples? And I was like, OK. And I think basically they didn't really want me to play samples. They wanted somebody that could supply them with cool skate clothes, uh, which I was happy <laughs> to do. Uh, but it just so happened. I mean, I actually could play keyboards. They didn't even ask me if I could play keyboards. Uh, but... Um, so I joined the band and that was it. It's kind of wow. a haphazard way of doing it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. one of those answering um, an advert in the music press. No. What what did they sound like without you? Um, was they, it more they guitar sound, They sounded, yeah, more guitar-ish. They sounded quite similar, but the, the samples were not as prominent and not as... Um, haphazard but i mean haphazard in a good way haphazard is you know you, it, there was just this sort of thing going along in the background of the samples and it didn't feel very live once you get somebody playing it live it mm. sounds live and it sounds better so mm. hopefully that's that's what i brought to the table so you weren't in other bands before that no no first oh. band literally the yeah, first time somebody <laughs> asked me to join a band and that was in october and we started rehearsing within two weeks 
at the end, you know, from middle of October. And then we had our first gig together was, you know, with me and the band was December the 7th. Mm. Um, I think December the 4th or the 7th of December, 1988. And by February 1989, um, so... Six weeks later, we had a single in the top 50. Wow. And, yeah, we had so six weeks after joining in a band. I had a single in the top 50. And six, you know, um, that, so that's 18, 1989. It didn't take, yeah. And within, within 18 months later, within 18 months, we played Reading, Glastonbury, been to America, Japan, Australia, been on top of the pops and whatever within 18 months, wow. you know, I mean, moved from the Bull and Gate to playing Wembley Arena and all these other, it's just nuts. All that in 18 months, um, just because I've met a bloke in a pub. There you go. Never underestimate the importance of footwear, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the more I think about it, the more crazy it is. Isn't that, that's just nuts, isn't it? Oh, yeah. well, there you yeah. go. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, like, were you into music? What, what, you, what were you listening to? Oh, yeah, no, so, I mean, absolutely. I'm a complete mu music obsessive at that point. Um, um, yeah, total obsessive. I, mean, I went to university to study Latin, of all things, and didn't really do much Latin studying, but I was just, you know, I was just completely obsessive. And all the time I was at university, I spent actually learning, I suppose, to be involved in the music business. So I knew a whole, you know, every time bands came to play at uni, I'd just hang out with the bands. I knew the people that put the PAs in the various clubs and bars. Uh, so I'd hang out with the PA dudes. Uh, which meant that you end up talking to the bands, you end up knowing the, some promoters or agents or whatever. And then I started, you know, when I started going to the student nightclub, eventually I thought, well, this is fun, but I'd much, you know, the DJ isn't playing the right songs. So one night I was like, well, I'll bring some records down and for the first hour I'll play some songs and I'll play what I want to hear, you know, because there was nobody particularly there. Uh, and that meant that I was, a, you know, before I knew it, I was just, I was DJing, so I DJed all around the clubs around Lancaster. What were you playing? Um, um, at the time, a lot of sort of a weird sort of crossover between indie stuff because everything was sort of quite gothy back then, you know. But then mm. again, there was a lot other things like REM and the The and sort of Paisley Underground things, things like the Long Riders. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, um, alternative clubs those in those years you used to play loads of loads of clubby stuff as well so you play you end up playing divine and you know new order and sort of early electro and i used to try and put a load of early hip-hop into my sets as well so um run dmc and that led into things like age of chance um anything with just big big beats in it i suppose um, and then I and then I started playing in the Soul Club in the centre of Lancaster, which is where I went to uni. And that, and then so I was just playing Soul and sort of, I suppose proto house as well. So late eighties, it's all kind of change in Luther Vandross and early electro, but that fed into sort of the, what was the beginnings of house music. So that was really exciting as well. 
Yeah. Uh, it looks like Luke's frozen again. Okay. Um, <laughs> it hurts the flow. Off it goes. But I got my answer in. So yeah. that's the main thing. Yeah. That's the thing. I think like the third. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, you're back, mate. You're back. Can you, it sounds like can you're you hear back. Me? Okay. Yeah. I heard I heard all the all of the answer. It's really oh, interesting, yeah. I think you're you're like the third P person we spoke to that's mentioned Age of Chance. I'd never heard really? of them before really? we did this podcast. And I've been listening to them since since our our guests have been talking about them. Um really good stuff, mate. Really good. That, I think the Age of Chance are, are often overlooked and they, they played a yeah. vital role really at that time. And when they started the, the first couple of records they put out on I believe was it Motor City Motor City Records, they had a sing a single called Bible of the mm. Beat and and another single and both of them were at the time um a lot of their sort of northern contemporary bands with people like Bogshed or stump and everything was quite noisy and like it was this cacophony of sound and age of chance fitted into that there was this kind of polemic that they had um so it was like this i don't know like a sort of turbocharged version of the fall maybe and then little by little this kind of way that they were getting things across started to become funkier and started to become um the beats started to become more structured and they really really explored a lot of those early um those sort of dance floor experiments were really vital to show people that you could blend rock music and dance music they were one of the first people to do it you know and back then when we were looking at doing a similar thing finding other people who did things which were even slightly similar was really inspiring yeah it's a really cool new discovery for me anyway so yeah it's great it's great so speaking of those kind of bands so they mean they're you mean like yeah yourselves popularly itself uh emf they were kind of all kind of mixing rock and dance some you know Popular yourself with another hip hop thing, EMF with yep. kind of ravey thing. Did you feel like you were kind of part of some like a movement that was going on? I don't know if we felt like we were part of a movement when we started. We were, we we quickly got the sensation that we were doing. We were, there weren't a lot of other bands in our particular area doing what we were doing. Although I suppose Popular itself. They had more of a sort of probably itself a bit more indie, a little bit more industrial in places, and we were aiming mm. we were aiming for much more poppy sort of areas, yeah. much more melodic type things, much more song based, I think. Um mm. but when we started, we were just trying to rip off the shaman. I mean, I think the shaman were the big <laughs> ones for us. You know, we oh. we listened to what they were doing with melodies and and how they were interpreting. And, and adding dance music into what they did. And it was it was like a proper light bulb moment listening to those, yeah. you know, something like in Gorbachev We Trust. That was a light bulb moment for us, you know, and we were lucky enough to go on tour with them. And yeah. we, learned, we, were, we learned more from them, I think, sonically and, and just the whole live experience. So much we learned from The Shaman. Um, we, yeah, I and mean, we definitely, we, we wanted to be like them more than yeah. any other band, I think. Brilliant. Yeah. Love the showman. Um, so you talked about it earlier, like it all happened, you know, within 18 months, you've done all of these crazy things, you know, and uh, kind of yep. Jesus Jones have become almost like a, a, 
cautionary tale of kind of meteoric rise followed by a quick fall. I mean, was it was it as simple as that or was it more complicated? Oh, no, it's undoubtedly more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it always is more complicated than that. But then yeah. again, you know, yeah, I suppose we had a, a fall because, I mean, in the sense that in the sense that the music industry moved on in terms of its tastes. So, you know, mm. you had grunge and then Britpop arrives and those are two very different things to what we were doing. So by the time we emerged with our fourth album, people mm. were like, well, we don't really like this anymore. Fair, fair enough. It's their that's their prerogative. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the, the second album, Doubt, sold, oh, I don't know, two, two million albums <laughs> and or something like that. And then the... Or at the time, they'd sold, you know, 1.7 million albums or something in America. And when Perverse came out, which is, you know, when we really dive deeper into techno and dance music. Perverse. perverse, Mm. Yeah, Perverse. Yeah, much darker. Perverse Mm. sold, um, I think, you know, in that first year, Perverse sold something like half a million albums. And because that was about, a third or forty percent of what we told mm. with the last album, people were like, "Well, that's a failure." It's and, still half you know, a million albums, right? It's still half a million, <laughs> yeah, albums, right? right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so, so all the way through our career, we've sort of sat there and thought, "Oh, damn!" You know, the third album only sold five hundred thousand, so we failed. <laughs> and and I speak and I speak to our you know artists these yeah. days now, you know, who are like. Oh yeah, so the third album didn't really do that well. And how many did it sell? And you sell, you say, well, it sold five hundred thousand. And literally, there are people who bite your arm off to try and sell five hundred thousand albums these days. It's nuts, you know. So, um, the idea that that could possibly be termed, you know, a failure in any way is quite crazy because that's an that's an awful lot of units still to shift. Yeah. Um, but it, it definitely was skewed by the fact that, of course, um, Doubt mm. um, jumped into some sort of pop stratosphere for a while. Yeah. Where the numbers, you were on, you were on the numbers smash hits up. and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The numbers at that level, they're unrealistically high, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that it, it set our expectations and everybody else's expectations unrealistically high. I don't yeah. think we were ever going to meet them, you know. I mean, so even if Perverse had sold... 1.2 million it would have been a failure in yeah. comparison to, to doubt was there a lot of pressure so we, yeah we, it, well there was a vast amount of pressure and i think in mm. a sense we were almost we almost you know it was us that set ourselves up to fail mm. and, you know because how how on earth could we ever have done anything that was going to be as as huge as that as, as huge as kind of right here right now and it's never gonna it was never gonna you know capitalize on exactly that same moment you know what i mean it was just like a zeitgeisty yeah. thing just yeah. ride that train you know um and you're still but, to this day one of the few uk bands that have a us number one that's that's yeah yeah totally right? yeah it's amazing do you, you know? still feel uh, proud of that yeah oh yeah i, I would be at, it would be churlish of me not to feel proud and i do all, all the time you know anytime you meet okay. somebody and they're they still want to kind of come to the gigs or buy the records. Yeah, I still feel very proud of that. The fact that you can do something like that that has resonance over the years is and things that you know, and, like Oasis never yeah. achieved that. You know, the, all the bands that we think are the biggest bands, right? It's mm. yeah. Do you, yeah, yeah, do you, yeah, they, yeah. Sorry, um, yeah, I was just going to ask. Do you know what 
what triggered that success in the US? You know, it was the sort of a bit of luck that someone picked up yeah, your song yeah, and yeah, championed yeah, it's it. All, yeah, it's all, uh, some of it is luck. Um, some of it is down to, we had an incredibly good A&R man. His name was Mike Menner. He's still a friend uh, to this day. And Mike Menner knew radio inside and out. And radio was the key in America at that time to sort of unifying the market in the state. And because he knew all of the people in the various college stations, the AOR stations, the pop stations, the alternative stations, um, he could talk to all the program directors and explain this song and say, look, you need to be playing this, this song. It's great. And he made them listen. He made them sit up and take notice. And once all of them took notice, started to take notice at the same time, it got this sort of momentum going. So you'd have one station in, I don't know, Houston, Texas, that'd be playing it. And another, you know, a bigger pop station down the road would say, hang on a second, how come, you know, 99HP are playing that? record and we're not playing it you know so it made it made it sort of mm. it, go viral i suppose yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you know plus um plus it it was you know it it was very much of its time it references you know the cold war and and the political situation and but in a positive way right all at the time you know so but it's got a real positive message behind yeah. it which a lot of music didn't have at that time right yeah true yeah there is that sense of positivity and everybody mm. always says and everybody always says oh jesus jones said you know everything was going to be great in 1991 and then now look at it everything's gone to crap ever since you know <laughs> um and that's the whole thing and you know i don't think we were being prognosticators and saying look everything's going to be brilliant from now on i think it was very much that about a moment and a moment is is one of those things where it's in your own hands you know it's mm. up to people to, to you know positivity is it is like what are you going to do with this you know and of course you know it turns out that some of that positivity changes and it evaporates and some of it ends up going bad and some you know good things happen but in different areas that's that's life isn't it you learn to deal with the things that come along and change as life progresses yeah i get well i think the other explanation is it's just a great record it's just a great tune yeah i mean i yeah that's that's something that's got a lot to do with it you know michael says that yeah he wrote it and as soon as he wrote it he was like actually that works you know and he's still proud of it you know that it hangs together and it works just as a good song you always know yeah. when you write a good song and he knew it he was like right that's a good one yeah he was right yeah i think in the us you were signed to the same label as vanilla ice did you get to hang out yeah we did a couple of times actually. oh you gotta tell us yeah. about this come on <laughs> yeah yeah it was bizarre we went to uh we were i remember being in a restaurant in los angeles and they brought him in and him and his entourage proper rapper like you know proper rapper entourage when you're surrounded by that a couple of you know, <laughs> guys with the hats and the, you know and like and yeah. a, you know a proper entourage, a posse a posse. posse he came into an italian restaurant with a posse um and so you know to sit down yeah. and i think at the time the thing about vanilla ice is at the time he was he was this mega star and the record was number one all over the world everything's ice ice baby and he started his film and all the rest of it 
And because yeah. I said everything had happened so fast with us, everything had happened within about a year. So I don't think we'd ever forgotten that we were just five blokes from London. So we were extraordinarily blasé about everything. And we really weren't, oh, my God, there's a megastar coming to mm. sit down with us. So, um, so Jerry, the guitarist in our band, um, just treated him like he was a bloke down the pub. And um, so he came to sit down and um, Jerry kept calling. So, you know, didn't know what to call him. So Jerry kept calling him Nilla. He was like, and Jerry was being, Jerry's a bit of a geezer, you know. So he was like, all right, Nilla, have a, have a seat, mate. Have a seat. You want a drink? Yeah, give him a drink. Do you want a beer? And you can have a beer if you like. And, and he was like, you know, Jerry was like, um, yeah, I'm having the, I'm having the uh, carbonara. It's good. Yeah, Nilla, do you want some carbonara? Get some carbonara. Um, and so yeah, that, was our, that was our exposure to Nilla. Um, <laughs> so it's great so yeah I, I wish I could tell you that it was all this kind of very rock and roll experience but it wasn't particularly rock and roll mm. um, I, bet, I, I, wonder, I, I, I bet he just thought who on earth are these Herberts <laughs> that's great love to that's ask great. him if he remembers yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah next, time, next time I see him I'll see if he remembers I'm guessing he won't <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I was reading um, Mike's book and he, he was pretty honest and kind of unsparing about the whole kind of um, experience in the music industry and everything. I mean, do you feel pretty much the same? Yeah, it's um, it's an amazing process. There's um, there's an immense amount of highs but there's an awful lot of darkness too as well and it's mm. a it's it's a process that you know the music business does chew you up and spit you out and um you have to be very aware of that you know and as as we've all grown older you know the people in the band i mean all of us our circle of friends involves people that we know you know in the business and in other bands and other musicians and you know i'm not exaggerating when i say all of us know people that you know didn't make it for one reason or another there's an awful lot of people that didn't come out of the the music industry um yeah. didn't come out the other side of life which is which is crazy you know it it not only chews you up and spits you out it 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 can destroy you too you know the pressure can get to you and yeah. you know there's an awful lot of ways you know there's people that have struggled with you know, suicide and mental issues and drug problems and alcoholism and just, you know, yes. dealing with dealing with fame and its and its effects, both positive and negative, isn't easy. Yeah, uh, there's, that, there's, a, there's that line from The Right Decision. The problem with success is you become what you detest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. was that I mean, that's his words, of course. Was, was that would you did you identify with that as well? Yeah, there's, there's, I don't know if you become what you detest, but there are definitely moments. Yeah, there are moments where you become what you detest. So there are moments where all of a sudden you're just, you know, you are, you're just scooped out of a limo and put into a TV show and the lights go on and all these people are there applauding at you. And, you know, or somebody comes over to give you an interview 
and you know that they don't give a damn about you and they know that you know that the audience doesn't really give a damn about you and the only person that does give a damn is the is the guy from the record company who's standing in the wings there you know with the with the sales numbers on a piece of paper you know expecting you to smile and do your best so that the album goes up the charts next week you know and there's a lot of that that goes on and there's part you know there's times where you have to grip and <laughs> squeeze and cheese you know i mean grip yeah. and grin and um yeah. there's times when you can do that and there's other times when definitely you detest it and that's why mm. people end up going off the rails you know because it just yeah it can get to you but yeah but you know I'm, i you don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not knocking it because the being in a band is a great life and you travel the world and you know you the money's all right at certain points at certain short points you know when it's all going good it's all right um when it isn't it isn't um so all of that you know it does and it provides you know it still provides not a living because it's not a career anymore but it still mm. provides all of us in the band with kind of a paid hobby you know 35 years on so it's all good yeah, yeah. but you yeah. you do have to keep your head you have to yeah don't lose your head always keep your feet on the ground and look around you and try and stay grounded because it, the, the industry will destroy you, but only if you let it. Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of, we've been speaking to a kind of quite a lot of bands from the Grebo scene uh, for the podcast. Yeah. And a lot of them are said that, you know, basically when grunge came along, well, Nirvana specifically, it was kind of the death knell for that, that kind of scene. And just like everyone moved on. Um, was it similar for Jesus Jones? Because they, I think, you're a bit more international and a bit more of a well. You were framed as as a pop band. Did you have, did it have the same effect? On, yeah, on I mean, I suppose that's that's part of it, you know. But you know, people say, "Oh, music changed," and I I've actually said that in this interview. I've said, "Oh, yeah, times changed and musical tastes changed." But in a way, yeah. that is a little bit of an excuse because bands bands change anyway organically across time mm. and it's a very difficult you know for bands to maintain a career for three four five six seven years you know there, there yeah. will be bands who totally can do it but a lot of bands yeah. don't get that you know a lot of bands get two or three years and they burn bright and they fade out and they go and that's it and this it's still wonderful do you know what i mean yeah um yeah. so i yeah partly that happened but was that everything to do with it i don't know you know um yeah. a lot changed in the 90s uh, a lot changed in the 90s and if it hadn't have been grunge it probably would it probably would have been something else do, do yeah. you know what i mean um and i think that as times change maybe it's bands that don't change themselves that maybe that's part of it too i don't know right 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 yeah 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 um i think a lot of uh a lot of a lot of us fans uh perverse is like the, the favorite album is it is it your favorite too yeah I, I would say so i mean it's it's a definite fan favorite mm. i think it's the one that's most close to what we were like as a band um all of the uh the previous two albums doubt and liquidizer were the the sum the summation of periods where you know, songs have been written at various phases of of our lives. Whereas with Perverse, 
it was definitely right this is what we're going to do we have to write a third album and it has to sound like this and we want it to encapsulate everything that's going on in our sort of lives and what we're listening to at that point Mm. Um, which is why all the technology is in there which is why all of the techno is in there the dance Mm. music where it's created with the dance music technology Mm. while it was done all done on floppy disk and maybe cubase Um, Mm. but all of the ideas were all collected in one solid block as well so with each of the other albums there's loads of outtakes and other versions and bits and bobs whereas with perverse there really isn't you know Mm. everything was like right that's it you know um, it was done as a very cohesive whole and it feels a more Uh, personal album as well yeah yeah very much is i mean it was and that it it was totally the reaction to what was going on or to all the fame and that it's the dark side of fame you know it's um bits of doubt sound like a rave record Mm. in the sense that there is that positivity there, um, like, you know, everything's love and peace and wow. Perverse is a come down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And perverse is perverse, even though it's more of a clubby record in certain respects, mm. it's an ecstasy come down record, mm. I think, without without a shadow of a doubt. You know, that darkness that can envelop you. And, um, you know, when you wake up on Monday morning and you've got to go to work and, and, the curtains are screaming at you and the, oh god you know the perverse is that uh, that sort of darkness and i think that yeah. much as everybody loves the the happiness and the positivity i think that darkness and soul searching has a, a universal appeal it always has you know and and i think it's people relate to it because of that yeah 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 i think so too um i saw i saw on twitter that you're writing new songs is that right is there a new album yeah on the horizon? yeah yeah we have two new songs ready to go already wow ready to go so what uh, can you tell us fact, about them um the two songs are one is called still smiling the other one is called blue skies there you go you're the, the first people to know the titles of the two tracks wow um, they sound like they're positive songs that's a, that's a nice yeah yeah very much so actually i think they are you know um and they sound like us they i think they're very much progressions from how we sounded on passages uh which is i suppose 2018 now uh it's mm. the first thing we've done for five years um what else can I say about them? They are nearly finished. I think Mike is actually doing backing vocals today. Ooh. And then they're, they're, we're going to send the files digitally to Anthony, who's the guy that does our production and mixing and mastering, and they'll be tweaked for final release. And what I'm hoping to do is hopefully release those two songs in the American tour somehow. I haven't quite oh right like a limited edition seven inch or something like that I'm, I'm like a like a something i've not That'd quite cool. worked out okay. yeah yeah I'm, okay i think maybe maybe not vinyl because vinyl pressing times are uh, the leading for vinyl is yeah. just nuts yeah. it's yeah. just insane so i don't know quite how we'll do it but we will do it because i think it would be nice to celebrate that american tour at being as it is um our it's 35 years it's basically a 35 fifth anniversary tour so it'd be nice to celebrate that with 
you know, looking back across those 35 years with some of the songs that we're playing when we play live, but also looking forward um, by being able to give um, the fans new material too somehow. So there you go. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Uh, before you go, one last question, if that's okay. Uh, we ask yeah. uh, every band member that we interview the same question. And it's, yep. uh, which other band from that era would you have liked to be, liked to have been in and why? You might have which had an answer band? <laughs> Yeah, we might have done. Uh, uh, Which other band? Yeah, probably, the, yeah, I suppose The Shaman. I'd have loved, you know, oh, they were amazing. Um, for me, uh, I don't really know, actually. I don't know. Either, yeah, The, the Shaman or World Domination Enterprises just to be on stage in that, like, just all that noise. Um, um, and then I suppose my favourite band from the late 80s and early 90s is an Ameri- is a Canadian band called The Pursuit of Happiness. Um, I just love The Pursuit of Happiness more than anything else because of um, um, the singer-songwriter Mo Berg, uh, who wrote all the songs just because of the way he wrote songs was, I think, peerless absolutely peerless better than almost anybody else and and the the chance to be on stage with them i think would have been absolutely intoxicating so yeah i'll say the pursuit of happiness and the shape brilliant great thanks so much that's brilliant thanks so much for coming on really really enjoyed that thank you yeah yeah it's been a pleasure cheers dave you fucking got me stop it it's not you can me. see it though. You can see it, can't you? Look, That's it looks you and your fucking chat GPT shit, man. I've had enough of it. Come on. Honestly, it's nothing to do with me. I don't trust you as far as I could throw you. How far could you throw him? No, I couldn't. I think I could lift him. I probably could lift him, I guess. We could toss Luke quite far. He's so light. I, I am. I am. How far? I reckon I could toss him about five metres. On your own? Five yeah. meter fast. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite a long you way. Not, you know, I'd spin round and round and then let go. You'd go five meters. I bet you. You're not going to toss me. I reckon you could. I reckon you could probably do like three foot. Right. So, Ian Baker. So Neil, yeah. So it was me and Dave in the interview. Um, what do you reckon? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. He's really concise, isn't he? Really interesting. Another really interesting, articulate guy. He seemed. Um, genuinely sort of humbled that people are still interested in the band which i found quite nice mm. um, you can just tell that he's just still doing it because he loves doing it like is that you like you said it's it's like a, a paid hobby now but that's fine do you know what i mean they, they mm. really still get a lot out of doing it which which is nice you know but he obviously puts a lot of time and effort into it right so he's talking about like doing the record store day release mm. and writing all the liner notes and you know making sure everything's perfect and the artwork and the vinyl and everything so it's like you know it's a real passion you know i agree i i love how passionate it was about um the vinyl and um how he sees it as a whole listening process and not just a, a format do you know what i mean amen brother spotify you have on in the car it just washes over you but vinyl you have to get it out put it on and inevitably, you're going to have the artwork there while it's playing, you know. Not only that, you're going to have to know roughly like when like, the end of side one is. So you kind of anticipate it. Then you have to get up and you have to go over. You have to physically pick it up and turn it over. So you get you yeah, know really the album better, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. That's I do great. find that interesting because I've I've never been. I owned some vinyl, at, like in the back in the nineties, but it was still mainly CDs. And I haven't got into the the resurgence of vinyl. I haven't actually participated in that. But don't do it, man. It'll ruin you. It'll ruin you. It's an expensive hobby, man. How much do you spend a week on vinyl, Luke? Do you know what I was thinking about this? So. um I think this year I probably spent more money on records than in any other year in my life because I've been trying to keep up with like new stuff. Um, but also because of the podcast, I've been going back and listening and like, picking up copies of old stuff as well. So I've kind of, I've done like double this year. So uh, uh, too much, basically too much, too much. And I have to slow it down in, in the new year. Yeah. But yeah, fuck it. Right. A new record here. New, not second hand, costs about £30. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? It's not cheap, right? I thought it would start coming down in price, but it doesn't, doesn't seem to be going that way. I think it will. I think it will. Not quite yet, but it will. Yeah, I like it uh, because he's also passionate about the whole record store day thing. We haven't really spoken about that on the podcast before, but it's that's quite a cool thing that they... Do. Is that just in the UK they have that? It is, isn't it? Everywhere. Is it? I didn't Yeah, we're having in Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the, the way that not only the, the fans, but the bands get really excited about that because it gives them a chance to release sort of stuff that they wouldn't usually release, like live albums. Yeah. Whatever, Although well, there's, cool. there's been a lot of criticism of it, but... Oh, is it? What, do they just capitalise on it? Well, it's just been taken over by, by the, big, the big artists, so which means that there's pressing plant oh, delays right. for, not even for record oh, okay. state, for other like smaller bands. They can't get their records pressed because there's half a million copies of fucking Sheeran that are being pressed up. Do you know what I mean? So they've kind of taken, taken it over. Yeah, which, but I think that the idea of it is, is, is great. Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's good. I found it quite funny the way that uh, Ian joined the band. I love stories like that. They just met in a pub because they had the same similar shoes on. That's great. That was it. And then 18 months later, he was touring the world with them. That's great. Fate, man. Just that pair of shoes. A love over a pair of shoes. And it, it was interesting how, um, like, underground skate culture was at that point, right? That To mm. that point, if you saw someone... And same, you know, if you, yeah, if you saw someone with, like, a pair of Vans or whatever, they, they, would, they would definitely be a skater. And that's interesting, right? Because now they're just a fashion item. A lot of those bands back in the day were into all of that, the whole skating scene as well. I think that sort of gets overlooked a little bit because I think um, Rat from Ned's, he's he's still quite heavily into the whole skating scene, I think. Well, it was pretty big um, in America, in the, Ameri- the American bands. Um, like Pearl Jam, I think uh, Mike McCready, he's, like, uh, he's got like a skate park in his garden and yeah, yeah. Um, shit like that. Um, the guy out of uh, Mud Honey was a big skater. Mm. I know Eddie Vedder surfs. Right. He's quite a big surfer. Right, right. What I thought was interesting in it, like we've talked a lot about you know, the brutality of the, the music industry in the 90s, but I think so far we've only seen it from that kind of the kind of the mid level. So seeing about it, hearing from him at the kind of the higher level of the music yeah. industry, where it really yeah. is like blokes in suits with clipboards, that was really, really interesting, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's much more so in America than over the, in the UK. But it was really interesting to hear that kind of higher level version of that brutality, you know. Yeah, because I, I like that he, was, he sort of said that, um, you know, Doubt sold like two million copies or so. And then or I think the fourth album, I can't remember what it's called, sold 
500,000 copies or something, and everyone said it was like a commercial failure. And that's half a million albums, you know. I think I mentioned um, before, I, I, I read um, Graham Coxon's uh, biography a couple of weeks ago, mm. and he says a similar thing, like when they went over to America, it was really like cheesy corporate bullshit, like, okay, guys, let's go out there and let's really yeah, yeah, make yeah. this one. You know, that kind of really like cheesy, like mm. corporate pep talk shit. But it was like blokes mm. in suits with clipboards who literally had no fucking clue about music clue, and yeah. didn't even pretend to care. You know, it was all about the money, which is, uh, yeah, it just sounds horrible. That's what Ian said, isn't it? They kind of just plonked them in front of these interviewers and who they didn't know and didn't really care yeah. about and uh, just said, yeah, just basically just sell the record and there you yeah. go that's what they had to do but yeah it's just mad that they're still selling like shit tons of records and and uh being deemed like a commercial failure and uh, he said like he had conversations with other bands at the time and they're like fucking hell like we could only dream of selling half that amount of records you know what i mean but do you do you think i mean they were good i like jesus joe's and they had some great hits but here we go. But it seems go like a bit of an outlier, doesn't it? That massive success in America. But that's what he said in the interview, right? He said it was an out, and they knew it was an outlier, and there was, you know, there's no, there's no way they were going to repeat. This. It's a one-off thing, right? Mm. So to expect yeah. them to to repeat it is was ridiculous in the first place, you know. Mm. One thing I noticed was, you know, the way they got that fame. He he talked about that A and R guy. I can't remember his name. Mm. And the key was yeah, radio, yeah. you know. Yeah. And Roxette had the same story. That's I right. wonder if it's the same person. Maybe. Uh, EMF as well, I suppose. Having having good pluggers in America at the time seems to have been a big a big route to success, right? It's interesting. Did he mention someone Charles Charles Koppelman? Is that what he said? I don't think he did, did he? That's what I read about. Chester Copperpot. Chester <laughs> That was a good one for you. That was a good one. Charles Copperpot. It wasn't Copperpot, was it? No, it wasn't. I'm, I'm going with your comedy name. All right. Yeah. And his his slogan was like, it's, a, it's just about the song. That's it. It's the song. And that's yeah. what he kind of based his whole kind of promotional thing on, which, you know, and that, yes, yeah. that's why they had these these one or two like huge hits, you know. Yeah, that, exactly. That's like, it's probably good for him and good for them to get the hit, but then no one knows what's behind that song. I didn't know that right here, right now was about the Cold War until this, oh, really? getting ready for this podcast. No, I didn't. Yeah, but I'm, I didn't I'm a bit shit like that. Watching the world wake up from history. It's a great, it's a great song. It was a time of hope. Yeah. I know. that Those early 90s, they really bloody were. Fucked it all up. Oh, well, well, let's hope the next oh, well. generation, <laughs> let's hope the next generation sort it out. Yeah, that'd um, be all right. Our generation's done fuck all, isn't it? Oh, our generation's the one that's in power now. We're oh, the fuck fuckers. Yeah, we're the cunts. We're the cunts. We are. Generation X, is it? But the bands that we interview, they're definitely in the same age bracket of the people in power. So they, they're the cunts. No, Everyone's been super nice. <laughs> Shall I leave that in? <laughs> yeah. Our guests are lovely. They're generation of cunts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> except, except like the people that are not. But it's not. That's not true, right? That's I no. That's not true because it's only 
it's just that small minority of cunts that get in power, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, it's the rich posh cunts. They, 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 you know, they, that generation have been just as fucked over as we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the good, the decent people, like the people in our interview, they haven't. They've just let it happen. We've let it happen. Well, I think the people in our interview, they have at least sort of tried to. Well, a lot of the bands have tried to change the world through song. You know, they've done something. What's your solution then, jerking boy? I don't know. I mean, there isn't one. Armed revolution. Maybe. I mean, what, what, how else? Can't fucking lighthouse family do something? Write a song or something? <laughs> yeah, I, actually, that, let's, they could. They could write a positive, uni- unifying song that's yeah. going to bring the whole, the whole world together. Like the Coke song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like when those ultra-rich, privileged celebrity fuckers sung Imagine uh, during uh, the pandemic. They do that for every disaster, don't they? I think they did one for Grenfell as well. Yeah, we digress. Uh, I like that like um, Ian said that, that they were trying to rip off the shaman in the early days, like. That was their big influence. I get that yeah. now, I guess. Yeah, because Shaman used to be quite guitar based. I think people forget like the first sort of album was quite until he died, didn't he? That guy when they filmed yeah. "Move Every Mountain," I think. Oh, really? I think mm. so. I think it was the video mm. for "Move Every Mountain." He he died. Shaman, that had a unique sound, didn't they? What would you call that sound? Shamanic. <laughs> it was a genre wasn't it it was a whole genre of music what does we are the shaman and we keep coming on mean it means exactly what they say they are the shaman and they keep coming on we're coming on strong it's a statement of intent a mantra yeah they were they do have quite a unique sound the shaman yeah but you know i put jesus jones and properly itself in the same kind of bracket wouldn't you yeah, the, the like techno meets indie. I think I didn't realise how influential the whole sort of late eighties dance scene was to these bands. I did notice when I went to Shine On actually that most of the bands there use samplers and stuff. Right, that was very much part of their performance. But they've always done that. It's not like they've just got on the got on board because samplers have become easy to use. They were using them back then, right? Which was a real pain in the ass back back in the day, I think. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? I, I really like it. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. It usually improves the song, doesn't it? It's, uh, mm. it's good. It gives it, yeah, it definitely gives it some weight, I would say. Songs are more weighty when they've got some decent samples in. I love the uh, the little the little story of meeting Vanilla Ice. And, uh, you mean Jerry Nilla? Calling him. Yeah, Jerry calling him Nilla. <laughs> I like yeah. that because that's very typically British and it just sort of treat people like they're your mate, even exactly. if they're like a massive star. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, like I, I do want to say something about that. Like, I don't want to insult the guy from Jesus Joe's. I don't know. I don't know who he is really. But that whole idea, that geezer character who's like, oh, I want, want a drink. I'll get you a drink. But they're not going to get you a drink, <laughs> are they? They say they want to be like, you know, all friendly and that. But when it comes to it, he's not going to get up and go and get you a drink. It's just bullshit. It's like, oh, I'll have the carbonara. I'll get you a carbonara. No, he isn't. He's not going to get it. I just don't, you know, I don't like that geezerish thing that happened. You've made that 
clear. Yeah, good. You've been waiting to get that off your chest for a while, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I just remember, you know, being in a, <laughs> being places and meeting these people you didn't know, and they're this geezery type, and they try and they pretend to be your friend. <laughs> Oh, so this has come from a per. This is we're getting to the heart. Of now, it we're now. Deeper, now we're going deeper. Now we're going deeper. But you know, I just I think I've met several people like that. I just don't yeah. like them. What because it because you think it's false? I think it it's false, and they're, they're kind of you know it, they're not they kind of don't. It's kind of disrespectful in a way, I think, but under this pretense of being friendly. I didn't realise when I brought up this vanilla ice story that this was going to happen. Yeah, so I'm I'm like feeling <laughs> sorry for vanilla ice in this story. <laughs> wow. Well, there we go. That took a turn. That took yeah. a turn. Yeah. This is a bit dark, I guess, but um, I, I do agree that he says like, because um, we're talking about the darkness of Persevere, I had a bit darker record than the rest no! of it. How oh, perverse. You know, you made me do that. You made me do that. The fuck was that noise? <laughs> you're lucky. Still, I really want to me, man. He's still thinking about the incident in the restaurant <laughs> yeah. where he didn't get his carbonara. He said that darkness has a universal appeal and it always has. And I think that's true. People like sad songs, don't they? Uh, sad songs generally do do well. Also, on the dark theme, it was really interesting what he, he said, you know, a lot of people didn't make it out of the industry alive. That was, yeah, that was That, that was, was quite pretty poignant, fucking powerful, man. Yeah. Mm. True. Read something that Bobby Gillespie had said about the amount of drugs that they took and stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of that oh, going man. around. Britpop was like um, fully into like heroin, like Elastica, yeah, yeah, Suede. They were like full on heroin addicts, basically. What well, a future... Upcoming guest, um, Ed Smash, he talks a little mm. bit about um, that yeah. as well. Yeah, It's not the industry, though, is it? I mean, the industry, I'm sure, is cruel. But the thing that finishes people off is that they have too much time, too much boredom, and do too much drugs. No, I think it's, it's well, when you're in a band, your time is filled with being in that band. And when that band's taken away from you, it all dries up. Then what? What? What have you got? Probably quite an easy hole to slip down. Depends about that. That's that's like the unsuccessful band. But if you're like a very successful band, and then you, it's just encouraged, right? You're just being offered it left, right, mm. and centre, um, and that's just what's just part of part of the job, basically. You know, if you're in the music industry, you just have to sort of be aware of how it works, so you can get out of it as sort of alive or intact, somewhat. Keep your feet on the ground. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. I was just going to say something else, and th- this is a bit, a bit nasty, a bit nitpicky, so you can cut it out. It's always doing but this. I've got a note here. The word is just a word that winds me up. Churlish. Go on. What's your opinion about that word? I think it's churlish of you to <laughs> to <laughs> to have a problem with the word churlish. What's your problem with it, man? I just can't stand it. <laughs> Is it the aesthetic? Is it the sound? What's the, what's the beef, man? These Jesus Joan boys have really wound you up, haven't they? No, I mean, Ian Baker is a lovely guy. I just don't like the use of the word churlish. But you haven't justified the problem. You haven't identified oh, the root of that. I can't. 
Well, then like, you can't bring it up. Okay, that, that's fine. That's like an irrational hatred. That's fine. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love. I love. I'm a big fan of irrational hatred. So that's. I get it. I get it. Oh yeah, Neil. I was going to ask when when they played at Shine On. Did they play those two tracks that Ian Baker mentioned? Well, it's interesting because after that, not long after we did the interview, they they did a um like an update on the website. And they, they 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 said they announced like the titles like he had said to us. They announced it on the website not long after the interview, but they've mm. never they haven't been released yet. And also, I wanted to say so he mentioned about the U.S. tour <laughs> in the interview that was cancelled mm. because they couldn't get visas in time. So it's been rescheduled, I think, for March next year. But that whole U.S. tour was, um, I think, they lost money from it. And uh, yeah, just like, again, broken Britain, man. They just couldn't get the. Uh, Whatever the the paperwork they needed in time, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if they played the new ones. To be honest, I was sort of flitting around doing some video. I wasn't really paying attention to what songs they were introducing. But maybe if there's some Jesus Jones fans that were there, they can tell us if they played any of the new stuff. Yeah, leave a note in the comments. All right, so that's that for this one. Uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Um, as always, if you're watching this on YouTube, please do comment below, give it a thumbs up and make sure you subscribe to the channel so that we can let you know when, when new content comes out. Um, if you're listening, rate, review, do whatever it tells you to do. Uh, that really does help us in getting the podcast found. So um, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to do that for us. Uh, Luke, mixtape. Yep, it's nearly done. Um, probably had a few more tracks uh, after this recording. Um, yeah, yes, it's uh, sounding good. What's next week? Um, next week, we're going to be speaking to uh, Haytham from Sensor. We recorded that quite a while ago now, but yeah, it's a cool interview. He's a really nice, interesting guy. Great band. So yeah, tune in for that one. Dave? See you in a minute.